If you would, open your Bibles now with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me ask the Lord for His help for this most important portion of our time together this morning. Father, thank You so for the demonstration of Your power and Your glory in raising Your Son from the dead. Who for us and for our salvation, as we just read, descended to earth. Lord Jesus, You lived the perfect life that we were commanded and demanded by the Father to live and yet could not and did not. So that having no sin of Your own for which to pay, You were able to take all the sin of all Your people and to take them to the cross that they might be punished in You, upon You, never to be seen again. So perfect not only was Your life, but Your sacrifice that on this day, by the power of God and God alone, You are raised from the dead. And that our faith is a living faith because You are a living Savior. Our hope is a living hope because forever You are eternally the living Savior. And so stir our hearts and minds now as we listen to Your Word. Holy Spirit, attend Your Word by applying it to our minds and our hearts where no man can go. Do the work that only You as God can do. And bring us all to the foot of our Savior Jesus Christ. Not at a cross, not at a tomb, but at a throne. And cause us to bow our knee. To lift our eyes. And to praise You. May begin by believing You, trusting You, and living for You. We ask all this that You would be glorified. Attend Your Word now as it is preached. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. In Acts chapter 2, we find one of the first, if not the first, Easter Sunday sermons that has ever been preached. We have the Apostle Peter as he is gathered together with the Jewish people who have come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And Peter uses the opportunity having, as it were, a captive audience to preach Christ to them. And the core of Peter's sermon is found for us this morning in verses 22 through 24. Would you look there with me, please? Peter, very directly addressing his fellow countrymen, says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. By the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Two of the greatest words in the Bible are uttered next. But... God, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Say what you will about the Christian faith. The one thing you cannot say. The one thing that you must reconcile with is that there is no other faith in the history of the world that has as its centerpiece an empty tomb. Contrary to Christianity, every other religion still worships at the graves of their founders. You can worship Muhammad in Medina. You can travel to various places throughout Asia and worship at the places where Buddha's ashes are scattered. 
You can go to Moscow in an estatist, communist way, pay obeisance at the mausoleum of Vladimir Lenin. But Christian, we have no such place. We have no tomb in which our Savior lies. Because our God lives. He is a God of life. If you can worship at the grave of the founder of your religion, he's not God. But if you can go to the place where your Savior once laid and find the tomb empty, then he must be God. And he is God. Christ is risen. God is true. Salvation has come. Men must believe you cannot remain neutral to this great eternity-altering day. You must believe or reject Jesus Christ. One or the other. And so here before us this morning, Peter, with great authority, with great power, with great passion, delivers this first of Easter Sunday sermons. Shortly after Jesus has walked out of the tomb, vacated the tomb. What a, what a sight that must have been. No wonder the soldiers feared for their lives. A dead man walking. One they had had a hand in killing. They weren't very efficient or good at their job, apparently. Because the stone rolls away. Jesus walks out. They are shaken to their core. All of Jerusalem is aware of what's happened. There's a great buzz around the community. And Peter stands up to preach. Peter stands up to declare the truth that will clarify all of the confusion through which they are living. And in this brief sermon, the Apostle Peter sets forth the foundation and the premise for our faith this morning on April the 9th, 2023. And by the way, it sets the foundation for our faith for all eternity. Not in Peter's day, not in our day, but for all eternity. This is the one reality that all men will, whether they want to or not, be forced to reckon with. That Jesus Christ is alive. That Jesus Christ is Savior to all who believe and judge to all those who will reject. And so, on this beautiful Sunday morning, and isn't it a beautiful morning? Glorious day, not only because of what it means, as every Sunday means, but on this beautiful, glorious Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday morning, from this text, I want you to see three proofs and one gift. Three proofs and one gift that we might be made right with God for eternity the call then just as it was to peter is an imperative one notice how peter opens his sermon men of israel listen to these words this is not arbitrary it's not optional Peter stands up with great authority and great boldness and says, you men of Israel, you must listen to these words. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, listen to what I say. Hear me now. It's just as imperative for us this morning. These words are still as true. The command of Peter is still as powerful. So dear friends, would you obey and hear the words that Peter is about to speak. None of us in the room this morning, not me, not you, are free from this command. We are here now. We have heard the call. We must heed the call. We are accountable now for what we will hear. Now let us be teachable to absorb the lesson. Number one, Peter starts by giving the proof of Christ's person. The proof of Christ's person. Now here's a mind-blowing truth that I want to put before you this morning. And it may sound a little counter to the day. 
But Easter and Easter Sunday don't center around an event. It centers on a person. The event happened because of the person involved. We don't worship the event. We worship the person who made the event a reality. We focus on Jesus Christ. He is the central focus of Peter's sermon. He's the central focus of our faith. He's the central focus of this day. It isn't the novelty that the tomb is empty. It is the truth that Christ is the one who vacated that tomb. And Peter calls us to consider him. Notice how he begins. Men of Israel, listen to these words. And what's the first thing he points them to? Jesus the Nazarene. I'm here to talk to you about a man. I'm still here to talk to you about a man. I don't have anything else to talk to you about this morning. I don't have principles for your life. I don't have anything to give you that that would be of any real worth to you. I mean, who am I? But I am here to talk to you about the man. The Lord Jesus Christ, whom we all must hear, whom we all must see, and in whom we all must believe. There is no resurrection if it isn't Jesus who is the central figure of it. Now listen, we we, we live in a culture, there's still just enough of the Bible Belt culture left around you in Midland, Texas this morning to be okay to have a holiday called Easter to celebrate. In fact, there are people celebrating Easter who tragically, heartbreakingly don't even know what they're celebrating. They just know they got a long weekend. And, and, and the culture is okay with, with a holiday. But, but it's not the holiday that matters. It's the one who the holiday is centered around. And it is the living Christ who alone can conquer the fear of death. Who alone has no ability. Death has no ability to keep Him in the grave as we just sung. Death cannot keep its pray why easy jesus my savior jesus is central to peter's thought to christian thought to our thought this morning he is the one alone who removes the fear of death because he cannot be kept by death it is impossible for him who is the god of life To be kept away from life. And so Peter in his lead up to the resurrection wants us to understand, I'm not here to talk to you about an event. I'm here to talk to you about a person. And there is proof of His person. Remember that Jesus, the Nazarene, a man, fully man, truly man, yet without sin. One of the Things that we dare not allow ourselves to fall into is some sort of new age iteration where Jesus is a spirit and He's he's divine, but He's not really human. No, remember, Jesus is man. Truly God and truly man. Without contradiction to either of those realities so that Jesus could, as a man, take men's sins for them. Spirit can't do that. But in His body, He hung on a tree as we, as we remembered on Friday night so powerfully and hung on a cross and bled for us. Spirits don't do that. Jesus is a man from Nazarene. He, a Nazarene from Nazareth. He is truly man. And notice this, He is not just any man. He is the man who was attested by God. Now, for our guest, we're so glad you're here this morning. And I'm going to give a little context because we're in the Gospel of John on every other Sunday at this time. We're going through John's Gospel together. And and church family who are here on a regular basis, you know that's where we've been in John chapter 5, looking at the proofs of Jesus, not only humanity, but now His deity as well. God has proven Jesus to be His Son throughout John chapter 5. So Peter uh, 
seizes upon that same truth. And he said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is truly man. But remember this, he is man who is attested by God. God has proven something to be unique about this man. He has been fully validated that not only is he man, he is also God. Without damage or contradiction to either one of those natures, Jesus Christ is both. And because He is both, and because He has been authenticated by His Father, He could do on this day what no one else in the history of the world has ever done, nor will ever do in their own power. He was raised from the dead. We dare not ever forget that. It's to our detriment if we do. And Peter says, this man, this truly man, also truly God, attested by the Father. The word attested means one who is designated or authenticated for a specific task. He is one sent by the Father with His Father's stamp of approval on His life. But there, there's more to the word than that. When Peter says that he is authenticated by the Father, attested by the Father, it also carries the idea that whatever he does for his Father is done with lasting results. Because some might look at Jesus and say, well, he was attested in his life and then he died. Oh, but it's so much more. Because the Father's attesting of the Son is proven not only to be temporal in His life, but eternal by His resurrection. The Father stamps Him as God of very gods, as we read a moment ago. What the Father did on this day through His Son carries with it eternal qualities that will last forever. I want you to notice something. Jesus is attested as a man in these ways during His earthly life. And I I would love if heaven has a giant screen someday to go back and watch this replayed. (laughs) I'd love to see that lame man as we've been looking at in John 5 healed at the pool of Bethsaida. Wouldn't you? I'd love to see what it looked like for, in fact, we were having this discussion the other day. What was it like when Jesus fed the 5,000? I mean, did, did, did they take a loaf and a fish off and another one just replaced it? What, what was that like? How did that happen? I don't know. I'd love to see it. But in all of these things, God is attesting that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased who bears all of the characteristics of God. All the power of God. And in His life, here are these works, these miracles, these signs, these wonders. Peter says, some of you listening to the sermon this morning saw those. That's what makes your condemnation even worse. You saw it. And you refuse to believe it. But but here's the contrast. Those people who ate the meal when Jesus fed the 5,000, guess what they had to do the next day? They had to eat again. That, that man whom Jesus healed at the pool of Bethsaida, he's buried somewhere. The woman who had the issue of blood, she died. Hey, Lazarus was even raised from the tomb, wasn't he? But guess what eventually happened to Lazarus? He died. No doubt he's with the Lord, but his body still died. All of those things were temporal, and yet, by the resurrection, God did something through His Son that was not temporal, but is eternal. Because Christ not only lives today, He will live forever. And anyone who places their faith in Him will live with Him. His life is now their life. He gave His life in exchange, humanly, 
for their sin and was crucified on a cross, He now gives us His life by the resurrection that we might live forever. Forever, this work of God in Christ, in the resurrection, settled beyond any doubt, beyond the ability to be corrupted, is eternal in its scope. Christ is the eternally validated One of God. He is God. In Him is life. And life more abundant. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. There is no life. No man will come to the Father at the end of his earthly days, but by me. And so Peter is bringing to mind the temporal validation of God in the earthly miracles and wonders and signs. And he reminds them, you all saw it. You knew it. You know that He is God. There is no debate. And now, I present for your consideration exhibit number two, an empty tomb. An empty tomb that will not have temporal effect, but eternal effect. And you know this, He says. You know this. We stand here this morning before the Lord, before His Word, before the evidence of history, before the evidence of lives who are sitting in the room this morning who have been changed by the power of the Gospel and the resurrection. And we all know. Whether or not you have believed, it's true. Whether or not you want to accept it, you know that it is true. There is evidence that is beyond denial. And it's a very dangerous thing for any of us to deny what God has made so true for us. You see, it's not so much unbelief. When we reject what God has said and what God has revealed as true about His Son and about His Son's resurrection, it's not really unbelief. It's outright denial. It's rejection. Because as Peter says, the truth is indisputable. It's not that there's not enough for us to believe. The issue is that we choose to, in rebellion, not believe. We reject that. It was acknowledged even by the haters in the apostles' time that that this is true. that, that, That there are proofs that Jesus was raised from the dead. The Roman soldiers. The officials. They even fabricate a story, don't they? We think we've got uh, the market cornered on skewing the news in our day oh they had it too when you're asked here's what you're to tell him his disciples came during the night and took him away that's that's our story that's our talking points that's what we're going with why they knew the truth and if the truth ever got out they feared what might happen it was acknowledged By the men in Jesus' day who knew the truth but chose to reject the truth. It is known by the hatred of men today as they seek to deny what they say doesn't exist. Then why waste your time denying it? If you say it doesn't exist. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene, The Father has validated by all the signs, the wonders, and the miracles, the greatest of which we sit here and celebrate this morning, that Christ was raised from the dead. And He cannot die because He is God. Dear friend, you cannot deny the mighty work of God in Christ.
We may think we can for a period of time, but there is coming a day when at the end of our life, we will stand before God Almighty. More plainly put, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, we will stand before the risen Christ. At which time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the living Lord of glory. Raised from the dead on the third day. Ascended to heaven. We will acknowledge the reality. There's the proof of His person. Now there's the proof of His pardon. Look in verse 23. This man, this Jesus, Peter says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says he was not accidentally taken. You thought you were behind this. You thought you were ending a movement. You thought you were doing all of this. You were gloating over your success in His crucifixion. But let me take the starch out of your collar and the wind out of your sail for a moment. You didn't do this. God did. God, by His predetermined purpose and power, had His own Son delivered over to you to be killed. Now that does not exonerate you from what you did. Because you nailed Him to the cross when you should have believed Him. But know this, that God is sovereignly, providentially in control. And because of that, because of what God did, and we could go back to Isaiah 53, we read this on Friday night, that Jesus suffered in our place. He died our death for us, absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. And in that pardon of sin, by God's predetermined plan and decree, we have hope. And the proof of the resurrection is not only found in the person of who Jesus is and the, uh, the validation of the Father, the proof is in the lives that are changed. Christians, I'm not talking about Christians in name only. I'm talking about genuine Christians. They live differently. They love differently. And someday they will die differently. Because they have the tranquility and the peace and the assurance that Christ's resurrected life is theirs. And it is not death, as the old hymn says, to die. To leave this world of sin. There's no death for the believer. So the believer lives differently there is this proof of the pardon that comes because god has delivered him over by the foreknowledge of god that doesn't mean god looked ahead and knew what would happen and went along with the plan it means to determine beforehand to decree something god knew it because god decreed it it's like parents when you give your Children, certain gifts at certain times of the year that are supposed to come from anonymous sources. And you act surprised when you see the gift. You knew. How'd you know? You're the one that bought it. God knows. God planned, and this plan has affected men and women and boys and girls to live differently because Christ was nailed to the cross, taking our sin away and giving us a new life that would be eternal, but would also be different in its quality while we are here. God didn't just, however, Determined to have his son crucified, he determined 
that he would also raise his son. Church family, I've mentioned it quite a few times in previous weeks, but John 10 and John 17 have a tremendous bearing on these realities. There's a proof of pardon in Jesus laying down His life and changing our life as a result not only of the taking of sin, but of the power of the resurrection. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life so that I may take it again. <laughs> you guys thought you killed Him. He laid it down. No one has taken it away from me, Jesus says. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Why? God's predetermined plan to forgive and pardon sinners by the life and death of His Son, to be pardoned, to be washed by His blood to be cleansed by His life and His death. God says that's going to amount to miraculous change in all who will believe. We'll see that in just a moment. But for now, Peter just wants you to know this pardon that God has planned has been executed perfectly according to His predetermined plan and will. Jesus became a curse for us so that we might become God's own children. There's a motif of cursing in Jesus' death that God the Father looks down on. And, and imagine this, that you have planned this. That you have planned to curse your only Son. None of us have children with the hopes of cursing them someday. And I can promise you this, none of us would have children with a plan of cursing them for some other vile sinner. And it's so that we might accept the other sinner because our child was cursed. No, we don't do that, but God has. He's effected a great exchange, Christ's life for ours, Christ's death for ours. In Deuteronomy 21 22 we read this if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed of god paul picks up the theme in galatians three thirteen: christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having been made a curse for us so that we can be different. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Peter says that was God's plan. You were pawns in the plan. You nailed Him to the cross. Now, notice this at the end of verse 23. You didn't even do it. You contracted it out to godless men. That is to say, men who have no concept of God whatsoever. That would be the Romans. Peter says, you sinners for whom God gave and validated His only Son who lived for you that He might become your curse so that you might have a transformed life and now live, you didn't even do the dirty work yourself. That's how low you are. And they did. They put Him to death. And yet, it's all part of God's plan so that men, women, boys, and girls could be changed for all of eternity. There is a pardon that is offered all that we have committed against God is forgiven in Christ by God. Christ has borne the payment of our sin. We who believe in Him will never then be judged for that. Yet the Father carries out this plan against His Son for our benefit completely, perfectly, satisfactorily, 
And now Peter closes with the proof of Christ's power. The proof of God's, again, validation. The proof of the power of salvation in verse 24. But God... Thanks to the development of modern software. You can go home and you can Google it. You can use your Bible app. You can do whatever. But just search those two words. But God. And see how often they come up in Scripture. And wherever they come up, you can believe this. There is great joy and great hope in those two words. But God. You did all of this. Your sin caused all of this. Your sin caused the death of Christ to be necessary. You had Him put to death on a cross. But God raised Him. God lifted Him from your death. God raised Him again to eternal life. Putting an end to the agony of death. Since it is impossible for Him to be held in its power. There's the proof of power. God raised His Son. Why did God raise His Son? Because the life of His Son was so perfect, having no sin of His own, because the death of His Son was so perfect, paying for every sin of every human being who would believe in Him. It was so perfect, God had no choice but to raise His Son back to life. There was no reason for Christ to lay in death. He was perfect in His life. He was perfect in His death. And the only resulting action is to raise Him again to life eternal. God was pleased not only to crush His Son, Isaiah 53.10, He is pleased to raise His Son. Why did He do that? me and you so that those created in his image who strayed away and became enemies of God by their sin and rebellion could be brought back home to the father like the prodigal son in Luke 15 they could be brought home again welcomed and received despite the cries of rejection from these men that Peter is addressing, from the people of God, from people even to this day. God still saves sinners by the raising of His Son. God the Father was pleased with the Son in His life, in His death, and He raises Him again. Notice what He says, that the agony of death would be put to an end. Put to an end. No more sting of death. That's why I love Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He mocks death. Oh, death. Where's your victory? Grave. Hey, grave. Where's your sting? Is that the best you've got? Christ is raised. Christ has risen. What what do you have? Christ cannot taste the agony of of death. He tasted it, but only for three days. He couldn't be corrupted by death. Brothers and sisters, that changes our calculus. That changes our life in unspeakable ways. Last week, a college friend of mine buried his 19-year-old son. He was just going about his job there. Actually, same college, his father and I, his mom, Nicole and I all attended together. Doing his job. Working on the landscape crew. Out weeding in front of the the campus along a main thoroughfare and a drunk driver comes across six lanes of traffic and hits him, kills him instantly. And I've noticed on social media the hope that that his mom and dad have. Christ, our hope in life and in death. Are there tears? Oh, yes. But is there agonizing? 
now. Because he's more alive today than he's ever been. And someday we will all be together with him. Why? It was impossible for Christ to be corrupted, agonized over in death because He is God in whom and from whom all life comes. And He is raised from the dead, perfect, unchangeable, untouchable. And all those who are in Christ experience the same joy. God raises Him from the dead because it was impossible. It's not possible for God to lie. It's not possible for God to sin. And it's not possible for God to be kept in the grave. It is not possible. That great conjunction, the greatest conjunction. But. But God raised him. How great is Christ? How great is the risen Lord this morning? I'll tell you how great. That all the corruption of our sin that had sentenced us to death for all of eternity under the judgment of God, separated from God forever. Just one of us is enough to make that point. But multiply that by the sins of the world. Every human being, every curse of sin that has caused this fallen world to be what it is, laid on the Savior Himself. Multiply your sins, your failures, by the infinite number of humans in human history laid upon Jesus at the cross. And all of that sin combined exponentially was not enough to keep Jesus in the grave. That's how great the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ is. It could not be overcome by the sin of the world. That's what today is. Today is a day that says all the sin, all the judgment of God against sin is not enough to keep my great Savior in the tomb. And so in one stunning, blinding display of acceptance, God who had three days before done His worst against sin. And what is God? He is infinite. So that all that He does is also infinite. It was perfect punishment at the cross. It held back nothing but was all poured out on His Son. And even in God, infinitely so, doing His worst righteous judgment against sin was still not enough that it could overcome His perfect, righteous, grace, mercy, life, and love. The only way we can be saved is by God's perfect wrath being met with God's perfect Life. And that's what happened today. God raised him from the dead. Christ has been tested having borne our sin. He is now raised for our life. The agony of death has been ended for Christ and for all who are in Christ. He could not be held by it. We won't be held by it. Death is so temporary for the Christian. But it's really not even temporary, is it? Not for the one who's died. No, for us who are left behind. It feels like, yeah, we carry the sorrow of loss. But not for the one who's died in Christ. Life just begins. 
Jesus Christ, the God of life, death could not hold Him. Death will not hold us if we've believed in Him. After Christ has lived, been tested, been punished, infinitely so, nothing is left but to include the power of God in life over death by raising His Son. And He does. And now there stands one gift. One gift. One way. Back to the Father of life. He raised His own Son and that is the gift of Jesus Christ. The life that Jesus Christ lived and now lives is for all who will place their faith in Him. Christ, I am a sinner. It was my sin that took you to the cross. It was there that God paid for my sin by placing it upon you. You bore the infinite, perfect wrath of God in my place. I stood condemned before God. I know what I am. You know what I am. But you stood in my place. You overcame sin by absorbing God's punishment. And now I believe you have overcome death by your resurrection for me. What a gift. There's nothing you can do. Friend, nothing you can do to equal that is there. What could you possibly think you could do that would equal that? There is nothing in us to validate us as God validates His Son and sees that He is worthy and see that He has paid the price. There's nothing in us. How could any good that we think we could do possibly equal what Christ has done so that God would raise us in the same way He raises us. There's nothing. So the gift is this, that God has offered Christ to us to stand in our behalf, both in His death and His life. How do we receive that gift? By faith. By believing what the Word of God says about Christ. About God's work in Him. By believing that it was for us, for me as an individual, for you as an that it, Christ died in your place, that He lives in your place. Listen, I don't know your hearts. Some of you I know quite well, but I still don't know your hearts. I can't read your mind. Only you and the Lord know where you stand in relationship to this gift, whether or not you have received it or have rejected it. Do not reject what God is offering in His Son. You have one opportunity, one person, one mighty act of salvation that is offered to you for your eternal soul, for your eternal well-being. It is in Christ and in Him alone. Do not neglect so great a salvation, so great a gift. Christ has been raised from the dead so that all who believe in Him, that His life would be theirs. I want you to notice something and just in closing here. Look down to verse 37. Now when these men to whom Peter had so authoritatively and so boldly declared these truths, when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Oh brothers, what shall we do? You've just described us. We are saddled with the guilt of what we have done. Peter says, Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Repent and believe. Repent to change the direction, to change the way you thought about Christ and to accept Him and to believe in Him. Turn from that to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Leave your sin at the cross where Christ paid for it. And take up your life this morning at an empty tomb. 
Leave the one behind and take up the other. Christ offers it for you. Quit trying to live your own life and take up Christ's life that was lived, given, and taken up again in your place. Let's bow our heads and close now in prayer this portion of our time together this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ's person and work for you, somehow you've been carrying the sin, either refusing to confess your sin or carrying the sin by trying to think that someday I'll do good enough, I'll be good enough, and then I'll be accepted by God. If that's you this morning, can I plead with you? Turn from that. Turn to Christ who alone was given for you in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Christ has earned it for you. So that all we must do, confessing what we know to be true about us and confessing what we know to be true about Jesus, accept what God has done in Him as God's free gift of salvation. Father, if there's one here who is confused about where they stand with You in relation to what Your Son has accomplished for their salvation, I pray that today would be the day. Holy Spirit, make it clear. Make it crystal clear to them who Christ is, what He has done on their behalf, that their sins can be forgiven by His work if they will place their sin at His cross, allow Him to pay for it, believing that He paid the price for them and was raised again for them. Cause them, Holy Spirit, to be convinced of these things. Give them the faith they need to believe. And cause all of us here this morning to leave rejoicing at the glory and the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray all of these things so that You alone would be glorified. For it's in Your name we pray. Amen.